would come from all over the island and congregate for Mass. I remember there were kids running all over the place. They would go from one house to the next, have lunch in grandma's house, and then in auntie's house, and then in their own house. Uh, it was a, an open place. Each family had their own home, but the doors were open, and the division between inside and outside was more fluid. Well, that night we decided to sleep on the beach, as they sometimes did. And I fell asleep thinking, this is the most peaceful place on earth. But in the middle of the night, I woke up to shouting. I saw flashlights waving around, and, and I heard the clash of sticks, and I sat up in the sand completely dumbfounded. There were about 12 young guys who were fighting each other. They had long poles and sticks and nunchucks, and they were just going at it all around me, in front of me, behind me. And I was sitting there completely lost. One guy walked up to me, and he donkey kicked me in the forehead. And, and I, was, I was just stunned. Well, soon some people came to re-establish order. The de facto police officer of the island caught a couple of them and tied them up to trees for the night, which was the best they could do for a prison on that little island. Then the next morning, he untied them and gave them their weapons back and told them to go home. Well, later they explained that there had just been an election for the mayor of the island, and so these two rival families from opposite sides of, of the island were in contention about it. One was disgruntled because they had lost the election, and so the young men from both families had it out on the beach where I happened to be sleeping. Okay, let me be honest. The story about the nunchucks has almost nothing to do with today's gospel. But the island does, and I couldn't tell you about the island without mentioning the nunchuck battle. So I think that the social structure of that island is an image of how our own faith should relate to the faith of others. You know, we tend to keep our faith in the most private room of our locked houses behind a locked gate. Each one of us has our own private experience of God and our own private beliefs. But our faith should follow more closely the, the dynamic of cease. Now, to be clear, I'm not talking about, you know, I'm not proposing a, a socioeconomic structure. I am under no illusion that cease was an island paradise. I lived through their 20 minutes of a war, so I have no illusion there. But this fluidity between inside and outside, between one house and another, is an image of how our faith is meant to be where I share my own experience of the risen Lord, and I'm open to receiving that of others. There's a necessarily communal dimension to the Christian faith, because we rely on the testimony of others to establish the most foundational belief that we have, that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. None of us were there. None of us saw it, nor did our parents, nor did our grandparents. We depend upon the testimony of others. And we see this dynamic highlighted in today's gospel. On the evening of the resurrection, Jesus appeared to the apostles. He showed them his hands and his side. He said to them, peace be with you. But Thomas wasn't there. And so later when Thomas came back, the disciples shared the good news. Jesus is alive. He rose from the dead. We saw him. 
But Thomas refused to believe. He said, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger into the nail marks and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now let's pause here because there's something actually irrational about Thomas' refusal to believe. Because he knows his friends. He knows the other disciples. He spent the last three years with them almost every waking moment of the day. He knows their character. He knows what they're about. He knows that they're not given to delusions or hallucination. I mean, how unlikely would it be that all ten of them hallucinated the very same thing at the same time and then recovered their sanity? Or that they would be lying to him. I mean, he knows their character. Could they all have conspired to deceive him? It's irrational. The only available option is that they're telling the truth. At least he should take it seriously. At least he should be open to their testimony. Well, the Lord doesn't leave Thomas to work out the syllogism. One week later, they're gathered together. Thomas is with them this time. And again, Jesus appears in their midst. And, and he invites Thomas to draw near, to touch his wounds, to put his finger in his hands and his side. And Thomas makes a beautiful act of faith. He says, my Lord and my God. And yet the Lord left him with a reproach. Have you come to believe because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have believed. It's a reproach for Thomas, but a blessing for us. A word of encouragement for us because we're the ones who have come to believe and have not seen. And Jesus calls us blessed precisely because we believed without seeing. We've believed on the testimony of others. And in fact, that's the situation of almost every Christian in all of history. With the exception of those 500 people or 600 people who for 40 days saw Christ between his resurrection and his ascension into heaven, every other Christian in all of history has relied on the, on the testimony of Thomas and of the 12 and of those few disciples. None of us were there, nor were our parents or our great-grandparents, nor was Pope Francis, nor was, was St. Augustine, the greatest theologian in the history of the church, nor was St. Catherine or Padre Pio. None of us saw him with our own eyes or touched him with our own hands. All of us, from the greatest to the most ordinary Christian, have relied on the testimony of others. The essence of faith is to rely on the testimony of others. And not only for the eyewitness accounts of the apostles, but for all of the evidence that we have that Christ is alive. Because the empty tomb is not the only evidence that Christ rose and that he's alive. You know, there's also the, the unexplainable growth and perdurance of the church, which Father Theo spoke about last week. How it, it began with 12 uneducated men in some outpost of the Roman Empire, and 2,000 years later, there are more than a billion believing Christians. There's the unexplainable discontinuity between in, in the life of those who come to believe in Christ, who at one point 
we're trapped in darkness or depression or enslaved to some addiction and Christ entered their life and, and something new happened. There was a discontinuity that can't be explained except that Christ is alive. There are so many stories, so many records. This is all evidence that Christ is alive, that he rose. There's, there are the countless miracles wrought in his name. There's the joy that floods the heart of one who comes into contact with him. And in your own life, there must be some answered prayer or some experience of his presence, however faint, that enables you to say, he's alive. All this evidence confirms the original testimony of the apostles. Christ is risen. And today I have good news. Your faith could be much stronger than it is now. If you would open yourself to the testimony of others, then the evidence that he's alive could multiply by 10 or 20 or 100 fold. Because all around you in this church right now tonight, are stories of answered prayers and divine interventions and experiences of the living God. Maybe each one of us has only a few stories or a few experiences. But why should we count only our own? Are we surrounded here by liars and crooks? What do you think of the people who are sitting around you tonight? Do you trust them? Well, if we came to really accept and trust the experience of others, our faith would be deepened and strengthened. The evidence that we would have access to would multiply a hundredfold. So I want to name three brief steps that we can take to foster a free exchange of faith. And the first step is to show up. You can't be built up by the faith of others if you're not in contact with them, if you don't live with them. Thomas missed the first resurrection appearance because he wasn't there with the other disciples. And did you notice how long it was until Jesus appeared again? It says it was one week later. That is the next Sunday. Well, the Sunday Mass is the privileged place of encounter with the risen Lord. He comes and meets us here. He's faithful to his promise when he says, where two or three are gathered in my name, I will be there in the midst of them. If you want to encounter the risen Christ, show up. Be here because he shows up on, at Sunday Mass. The first reading describes the first Christian community, how they would gather together every day to pray and share life together. Acts says, all who believed were together and had all things in common. They had all things in common. So Acts is speaking literally about their material possessions. They would sell what they had and they would put all their resources in common. I'm not proposing that uh, for us tonight have a lot of young adults here who might be okay with it, but I think the rest would say, uh, what do you guys have to bring to the table? So I'm not proposing uh, Christian communism, but I am proposing a, a kind of spiritual putting all things in common. And, and I can imagine that that's what happened for the first Christians, that they would gather together every night to share meals and to pray together and one would come back and say, I was with Peter today. And, and he raised up a cripple. And, and another would say, I was with John today. 
and he healed a leper. And they would be built up by the stories that they shared. And they would rejoice as much in what the other shared as what they saw with their own eyes. The second step is that, it's to share. So maybe in this Holy Week you experienced the mercy of God. Or maybe in this last year you had an answered prayer. We'll share that. Because it's not for yourself only. It's for all of us. It's for all of us. What God has done in your life, he means to be a sign for the whole community. And so we can't keep that to ourselves. We have to share it. Lastly, open yourself to the experience of others. If you're humble, all the experiences of others will redound to your own faith. If you're prideful or insecure, you'll think, well, why doesn't God speak to me that way? Why doesn't he ever answer my prayers? Why doesn't he do anything for me? Well, what he did for your friend, he did do for you. If your friend is generous enough to share it, and you're humble enough to receive it, then what, you're, what, what he did in someone else's life is a sign for you to build up your faith. The other week, a few weeks ago, a woman told me that when she gave birth to her son, maybe more than 20 years ago now, right after, it was a very difficult birth, and right after she gave birth, they took her son away to the emergency room. And she was laying there exhausted in the hospital bed, and she heard God say to her very clearly, everything is going to be okay. She heard the voice of Jesus, and it was undeniable. A moment later, the nurse came in and said, I have difficult news for you. Things were complicated in the birth, and we don't know how things are going to turn out for your son. And she responded to her, everything is going to be okay. Imagine the nurse was taken aback. Where did this peace come from? Well, over the course of years, as her son struggled with different health issues, she had that foundational certainty because the Lord had spoken to her and she believed. She knew that he had spoken. Well, I could hear her story and complain, God, why, do you, why don't you ever speak to me that way? I've never heard your voice like that. You've never spoken to me so clearly. Or I could believe and I could say, thank you, Lord, for speaking to me through this woman. Thank you for building up my faith. I believe that God is alive and that he's active in this community. So let's put what we have in common. Let's share it with one another and believe.